0: Today we are in Luke chapter 9, from verse 37, down to verse 44. This is what God's Word says, beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, we ask now that we have turned to your word, that you would help us to be astonished in spirit and in truth at your majesty as revealed in Christ, in his person, and in all of his work. Thank you for so wonderful a Savior. Help us to honor him by adoring him. And we ask that your spirit would open our eyes to behold that wondrous beauty of His. In His name we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at Jesus' transfiguration in verses 28 down to verse 36, in which we were taken up to the heights of heaven. As Peter, James, and John witnessed the true, shining glory of Jesus unveiled for a moment in history. Because there, on that mountaintop, they saw, as it were the human nature of Christ briefly peeled back and we were able to catch a glimpse of His divine nature shining through in all of His splendor and true majesty. And if there's any doubt about who this Jesus of Nazareth is, what happened on that mountain made things crystal clear. That He is God incarnate, the Almighty God who came down to us in the vesture of humanity. And it was an awesome sight for the three disciples to behold, an experience that they would never forget for the rest of their lives. But the very next day, verse 37, as they come down from that peak of heavenly spiritual experience, it's as if we are rudely awakened to a crash landing back down to earth below, back down from the mountaintop down to the flat plains of earthly life, with all the struggles and woes of fallen human nature, falling short of God's glory as revealed on that summit. Because you see from verse 37 to all the way down to verse 56, we're shown a series of blunders on the part of Jesus' disciples who, even after two years of being with him, still can't seem to do many things right. And they show themselves to be spiritually weak and utterly inept in so many regards. They don't seem like very good disciples of Jesus. And they sure are not living up to the reality of the awesome glory of Christ that was revealed on that mountain and how worthy he is of our entire devotion, faithfulness, and praise. And at the outset, I hope that in some sense this serves as an encouragement to you Because here we're given a very realistic picture of discipleship. And what we see is not a group of guys who are just fantastic followers of Christ. Every day taking a giant leap forward in godliness and sanctification. But instead it sure looks like Jesus' disciples are a bunch of stumbling, bumbling, fumbling blockheads. Prone to making the same blunders over and over again. And if we're honest, isn't that true? Of all of his disciples, namely us included. And many times it seems like rather than making a giant leaps forward, we take some steps backward. And we're always tripping and slipping on the path of following Christ. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like that the life of faithfulness to God is a lot harder than you'd like it to be? And then even after years of walking with the Lord, you notice that you're still a very Clumsy Christian, spiritually speaking, hobbling and stumbling over the same struggles and having to relearn the same lessons over and over again. Do you ever feel discouraged when you realize how spiritually feeble you actually are? Well, if so take heart, you're not alone. Don't think that Jesus in his earthly ministry picked out the finest of spiritual men to be his disciples. Those whom he sensed were predisposed to great faith and holiness in and of themselves. No, he picked out a bunch of ordinary folks who were quite extraordinary only in how unreliable they were. How faithless they were. How spiritually dense they were. In fact, if you read carefully through all of scripture, you'll find that the greatest of the saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all had instances of being total spiritual boneheads one way or another, even after coming to know the Lord and walking with Him by faith. Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, Peter, James, John, they all have some embarrassing moments of faithlessness recorded for us as, even they stumbled and hobbled their way through the walk of faith. And all of this is to remind us that we are all nothing but for the grace of God. And thank God that as believers, we are being upheld by His unwavering faithfulness, His long-suffering patience, His mercies that are new every morning. And so it is here as we come down from the mountain of transfiguration down to the plains of the real life of imperfect discipleship that we are shown a very candid portrait of Jesus' disciples struggling with faithlessness as they fail to cast out this particular demon. And these struggles are recorded for us not to condone us in our failures, but to help correct us by showing us why it is that we so often stumble and fall in such ways. And that there is grace sufficient for us nonetheless. Because you see, all of these failures by Jesus' disciples, through the rest of this chapter, they have all one thing in common. That is, that we so easily and frequently take our eyes off of Jesus. That's really the root cause of all of our woes and struggles. That although we know and believe him to be that all-sufficient Lord of Majesty, as he revealed in his transfiguration, we struggle daily to maintain that focus on that which we know to be true, the truth of who he is, and even the truth of all that we are in him. You see, as we open up to this passage, it feels like the hundredth time that we see Jesus healing someone possessed by a demon, and thus casting out that evil spirit by his power and authority. But remember, in every biblical record of Jesus' miracles, we need to always ask, what are the details of this account that are unique? Even if it's the same type of miracle that's been performed elsewhere. What sets apart this account from all the other times that Jesus delivered people from demonic oppression. Because therein, we will find the lesson that the Holy Spirit has for us, and it communicates to us in the Word. Well, first, let's just tackle the low-hanging fruit. Let's observe some basic details of this account that are not exactly unusual. It says in verse 37 that as soon as they come down from the mountain, Jesus and the three disciples with him were met with a great crowd. Again, that's very usual. And in that crowd was a man who begged Jesus to take a moment to give attention to his only child, a boy, who has been tormented by this evil spirit. And we see in verse 39 what a horrifying condition that this boy was in. The father tells Jesus that this evil spirit seizes the boy, that is, that the spirit takes hold of him, And as a result, the boy has been subject to spontaneous screaming. Now, who is the one screaming? The boy or the demon? Who knows? Maybe it's both. The demon shrieking in its hideous self-expression. And the boy shrieking out of his anguish and agony. Not only that, it says that the demon convulses the boy, that he foams at the mouth and shatters him perhaps trying to describe uh, the phenomenon of the the demon contorting this boy's body to the point of crushing him from within. It just won't leave him alone. And Matthew's account tells us that this evil spirit so dominates the boy and subjugates him to such self-harm that the boy is often led to suddenly, suddenly, mindlessly jump into open fires and open waters. It's as if whenever the family went camping, the boy would throw himself into the campfire. Who knows why? But he would burn himself in the flames. And then the very next day, as they had a pool party with their neighbors, the boy would suddenly dive headlong into the pool and stay there underwater, nearly drowning himself until he would be pulled out. This is a boy's miserable condition. And again, let this be a reminder to us that All of the devil's promises, no matter how alluring they appear, are always intended to destroy souls and rob them of life. I mean, think about the world today just immersed in the ideology of postmodernism. You know what postmodernism is? It's simply self-exaltation. That's why the language of postmodernism, to, to read a text with postmodern interpretation, is to read yourself into it. What does this mean to me? Postmodernism is all about relative truth, no absolute truth. It's about my truth. Whatever I think is true is true. It's all about the self, the glorification of self. The universe revolves around you and being true to yourself. This is how this whole world, especially the young generation, Operate because they're being taught this. And so, countless souls have bought into the false promise of unrestrained hedonism and self gratification, especially these days, manifesting itself through sexual deviation and gender dysphoria. And that's why society is where it's at today. It all comes from ideological and philosophical underpinnings that are of demonic origin. But the real tragedy is. That all who are immersed in such thinking and a lifestyle of being free and doing whatever they want to do, breaking the norms, breaking the boundaries, you know, actually, in the secret honesty of their hearts, did you know that they are more unhappy than ever? Utterly starved of true fulfillment and meaning and identity, ironically? Why do you think depression is at an all-time high in correspondence with this godless ideology that has been propagated and especially accelerated in the last couple decades? You know, we need to keep this in mind and bring to such poor souls the joy and hope of the gospel that is in Christ. Namely, that the divine, unconditional love that they long for is found in Jesus And it is freely extended to them because of the cross on which Jesus suffered and died for such miserable sinners like us, so that we might have true life in him. Because only in Christ can we return to our God and Creator and live each day in fellowship with him as we were made for. But the point is that we see in this passage the devil's destructive torment of this poor boy. However, thus far, these details are not necessarily unique. Because again, this kind of misery is what always happens when a soul is under the influence of the devil. Take for instance the account of the demon-possessed man that we saw earlier in chapter 8 from verse 26 down. The man of the Gerasenes who had a legion of demons enter into him. And there we see the same kind of self-mutilating behavior under the influence of evil. Such that, as Mark tells us in his parallel account, that the man would cut himself with stones. And he would strip himself of his clothes and he would make the senseless decision to move out of his house to go live outdoors by the tombs, roaming around the cemetery for a living. And so as bad as this boy's condition is, it's not unprecedented for one who is possessed by a demon, but rather it's quite characteristic of demonic influence and oppression. However, what is special about this account is not so much the spiritual condition of the boy, but the spiritual condition of the disciples. The key point is in verse 40, where we find that before asking Jesus for help, the father had already tried asking for help to deliver his son from demonic affliction. And who did he ask? The father tells Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out. But they could not. Now, you remember back in chapter 9, verse 1, as Jesus commissioned his 12 disciples to go and preach the gospel and empower them by, by, by vesting in them his divine authority and power, he said that they would be able to heal the sick, perform miracles, and Cast out demons. All the works that Jesus himself had been doing. And by the way, as we mentioned a couple months ago, this was not something to be replicated in every generation as the normative Christian experience for you and I to do the same thing. Rather, this was a very unique point in history where Jesus conferred his power just to his 12 apostles in a specific time for a specific purpose of authenticating the message of the gospel through these signs and wonders. You know, I find it amusing that for those who claim that that chap, uh, passage in chapter 9 of Jesus commissioning the apostles in the passage should be normative and, and that every miraculous work that they did should be precisely repeated today by every Christian. I find it amusing that, of course, they conveniently ignore the part in that very same passage where Jesus also instructs them to take nothing for their journey no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, don't wear two tunics, but only wear the piece of clothing that you're currently wearing. When's the last time you saw a hyper charismatic teacher fit this description? And usually it's the opposite. They're quite happy to not only carry a lot of money, but ask a lot of your money and enjoy their nice chock-full wardrobe and designer bags and things of that nature. But In any case, the important thing to remember is that Jesus gave his disciples the authority to cast out demons. And so why couldn't they do it here for this point? Well, Luke doesn't tell us explicitly, but Mark tells us in his account That after Jesus casts out the demon himself, the disciples come to him in private, probably embarrassed, and ask the same question, how come we couldn't do it? And Jesus tells them, this kind can only be delivered by prayer. Now, you might think, well, that's understandable. It sounds like it was a really, really big, bad, evil spirit. It must have been the final boss. Up till that point, the disciples were casting out the henchman demons, but this one was the big mafia boss, and they needed a little bit more experience to be able to fight the big, bad Godzilla. But no, look back at chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus gave them authority over how many demons. All demons including this one that was tormenting this boy. And so why were they unable? It's because they tried to do it by their own spiritual strength, apart from relying on Jesus' power and promise. In other words, somewhere along the way, the disciples started becoming self-impressed with this newly bestowed abilities That were conferred to them by Jesus, and they grew self sufficient. That's why Jesus said, It's only by prayer. Now, what is prayer? Prayer is simply the attitude and expression of humble dependence on God. Jesus was telling them, You couldn't do it because you stopped depending on God. Only by prayer you could have done it, implying they stopped praying. They stopped relying on God. Maybe after casting out one, two, ten, fifty demons in their evangelistic journey for which Jesus sent them, they began thinking, hey, there's something special about us. We're very good exorcists. They should make a movie about us 2,000 years later. Perhaps they began to think that they were inherently very spiritual people worthy of such endowment of supernatural power. And thus they forgot that they are nothing apart from Christ. You see, they began to lose faith. Not because they started doubting their abilities per se, but actually because they were overly focused on their abilities and started feeling like they didn't need God as much. God was the training wheels. now I know how to ride the bike all by myself. this is why they failed to cast out this demon. They grew in self-sufficiency and they took their eyes off of Jesus. And instead started looking at themselves. And inevitably, they began drifting from the very source of their empowerment. And so when they came across this formidable demon, they attempted to cast it out with all of their might, with all of their efforts... But all to no avail, and actually they were frightened. They Began to doubt and waver in their former confidence in the promise of Jesus, who said, I'm giving you power over all demons. And instead, this demon, circumstantially, seemed too overwhelming and intimidating for their special skill set of exorcism. Now, do you see the lesson that is given here in this account? Forget about the exorcism for a second. The broader principle is this. How often do we lose sight of God and become fixated on our own abilities, our own wisdom, and our sense of control in our lives, only to result in great panic, frenzy, and fear? As we see the spiritual ineptitude of the disciples in forgetting the most basic principle of reliance on Jesus, aren't we reminded of ourselves in all honesty? How often do we, in the face of our fears and anxieties, we fail to turn to God in prayer and be comforted by the peace that He is in control and that for our good, even if we don't understand it, but instead we allow ourselves to be controlled and overwhelmed by our circumstances, try to do things by the mustering up of our own willpower and strength, and we suffer such needless distress because of it. As the hymn goes, Oh, what peace we often forfeit, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. How many times do we have to learn this same basic lesson over and over again? Always falling back to the mode of self-reliance. And so Jesus says in verse 41, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. And so Jesus takes care of the business himself. And the boy was instantly healed in verse 41. 42. And given the full context of what was going on and why the disciples were unable to deliver this boy, it's clear that when Jesus says, "O oh, faithless, twisted generation," he's not talking mainly to the crowd, nor is he talking to the Father. Actually, in the parallel accounts, his faith is commended by Jesus, but clearly here Jesus is talking about the faithlessness of his own disciples. Because again, their faith began to diminish in light of their increasing self-sufficiency. Now, you may be a little jarred by what Jesus said here. Those are some harsh words, man He sounds really upset and really irritated by the disciples. Oh no, is this how Jesus feels about me in my moments of faithlessness? I knew that he hates me. Well, we have to understand that these phrases and sayings of Jesus were not spoken in a vacuum, but you can almost always find an Old Testament allusion. Because so many of the words of Jesus were originated first from the Old Testament, because after all, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets the entire Old Testament. And this term, faithless, twisted generation, was not words spoken out of his personal vexation, but it was to remind us something of the Old Testament, namely from Deuteronomy chapter 32, where this phrase comes from in the song of Moses, in reference to the people of Israel throughout their wandering in the wilderness as they constantly rebelled against God. But do you remember what made their rebellion so senseless and foolish? as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It's that all along, God had been faithful to them. He never failed them. Not even once. He always provided for them. All they needed to do then, was the next time an issue came up, was just ask. But instead of asking... They grumbled and complained from the moment they left Egypt. And actually, even while they were still in Egypt, during, while God was uh, releasing them from bondage. And so at the Exodus, they witnessed the mighty hand of God in the final plague, thrusting them out of Egypt... And they praised God and they were certain that He is the one true God of their fathers, of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But as soon as a little adversity came, as Pharaoh and his army came after them, they were screaming bloody murder They panicked and complained, oh my goodness, where are you, God? We're all going to die. And then God, what did He do? He parted the Red Sea and He took them by the hand across the waters to dry land. And they praised God and they gave glory to Him. But as soon as they got a little hungry, then they started getting a little hangry and they grumbled. And said, we're all going to die. Oh my goodness, where's the food? God led us out here to starve and die. I wish we were back in Egypt. And then God gave them manna from heaven and quail to eat. And then they got thirsty and they doubted God again and they accused Him of being absent. But then God gave them water out of a rock, miraculously. Not just once, but many times. Over and over again, such was the story of their wandering in the wilderness. God proved Himself faithful. Absolutely trustworthy. But Israel kept wavering in their faith. They were faithless. And recalling this history of Israel's track record in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 32 verse 5 says, they were a twisted generation. Why twisted? Because rather than looking upward to God in hope and peace as they should have, they habitually were inverting themselves, contorting their vision and looking inward they kept forgetting about god's absolute faithfulness which he proved to them time and time again and thus failed to trust him and if you read the very next verse in the song of moses in verse six you hear the words of fatherly pain as it were as god sees his people to be so distrusting of him it says in verse six is he not your father who created you, who made you, who established you. Remember the days of old. Remember all that He has done. How good and gracious He has been. This Old Testament context is what Jesus was alluding to when He said those words about His disciples. You see, Jesus did not say these words out of personal anger and rage, but rather to If anything, illustrate the primary emotion of divine grief, as it were. Why would you not trust me? Have I not proved myself so trustworthy? Why would you not trust me at my words when I gave you the authority to cast out all demons? Do you know how much it grieved God that his own people kept doubting him throughout the wilderness journeys? How much do we grieve God now when we don't trust Him? Even though He has proven Himself so faithful to us throughout our whole lives. And somehow, when a particular circumstance arise that that bothers us, we forget it all. It's like we have all of a sudden the spiritual memory of a goldfish. And somehow we act like there's no track record Of God's amazing provision and faithfulness and sustenance and protection for all the years and decades past. Even in spite of all the times we went astray. And when we forget God and when we distrust Him, it grieves Him. Why? Because He loves us. As a father to His children. Parents. Does it not grieve you? When it seems like your own children don't believe that you love them and that though they might not understand it, you're trying the best you can to help them and to nurture them. So it is with God as He sees us wavering in our faith in Him. As we so habitually try to take care of ourselves, take matters into our own hands as though We were walking this life alone, apart from Him, as though He were not our very present Father. And doesn't this reveal just how spiritually weak we all are? How frail and how fickle is our faith in Him? We do many things that would exasperate God, seemingly exhaust His patience. But we must never forget The grace of the gospel that Christ came for such weak and faithless souls. Notice how this passage ends. Verse 42 Jesus cast out this unclean spirit so instantly and so valiantly, and the boy was healed, and the Lord gave him back to his father. And verse 43 it says that all were astonished at the majesty of God. But the astonishment is interrupted as Luke interjects and says, But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, this is the second time that Jesus clearly foretold of his suffering. But why here? Why does Luke interject it here? Because he's trying to show us how Jesus' heart is such that he came in order that he might bear with such unbearable, weak faith people. You see, the crowds were amazed by a glimpse of divine majesty in this powerful healing. But Jesus interrupts so as to say, I have not come to bask in my rightful majesty. But I have come precisely to lay aside my rights in order to suffer great shame and contempt for the many generations of the faithless and the unrighteous. And doesn't the context show us exactly this? What happened just before this? Jesus was transfigured. Have you thought about how much Jesus himself must have enjoyed that moment of transfiguration. After 32-ish years of incarnation, having emptied himself of the free exercise of divine nature, how right it was on that mountaintop for his uncovered glory to be returned to him, as it were. All was made right in that moment. But Jesus did not come to revel in his unveiled glory up on the ivory tower of that mountaintop. But he came to tend to pitiful, lost, damaged sheep down on the plains below. Despite the transfiguration experience, tasting his own glory that was rightfully his, our gracious, self-giving Lord recommitted himself to the garments of humiliation, covered up his true majesty once again, and descended down from that mountain to this crowd of people and to his disciples who were feeble, weak, exasperating. But that's whom he came to minister. And I wonder if the transfiguration tempted Jesus anew to refuse the course of suffering. I wonder if, in the brief moment of his glorious uncovering, how tempted he must have been to remain in. In that state of unveiled glory. And just ascend back to the Father from that mountaintop. And deny the path of unjust pain and shame and spiritual torment that awaited him at the cross. But instead, our Lord actively denied himself once again. And came down to bear with the weak and faithless generation. Even his own disciples. Who would often bring him much grief. Not only here, but even so later, as they would deny Him and desert Him in His hour of peril. But this is the incredible love that Christ has for sinners like us. He has never-ending grace and long-suffering patience for us in our stumblings and wanderings. And He proved this by verbally declaring once again of His commitment to be soon delivered into the hands of wicked men as a way of expressing his renewed determination and resolve to follow through on the Father's plan of humiliation all the way to the end, even to death on a cross. And he proved this by indeed following through that plan, by going to the cross and not refusing the crown of thorns placed on his head, nor the nails driven through his hands and his feet, which is all for our transgressions. You see, church, the gospel is what we need every day of our lives as believers because weakness of faith is true for all of us. Do you know how many times Abraham, the father of faith, you know how many times Abraham doubted God? Even after God appeared to him many times to confirm and reconfirm his promises, still Abraham made some very foolish decisions out of fear and not faith. That's the father of faith. But this is how potent and toxic our indwelling sin is. The sin that remains within us even as believers. Hence the need to wage war against our flesh daily and to grow in sanctification and greater trust in the promises of God because it grieves our Father when we so habitually take our eyes off of Him and wander off away from Him. But let us be assured of the Gospel that though He is grieved, He is committed to never leave us, but is there ever-present to correct us and to be our all-sufficient grace and mercy. And God knows we need His grace because we are so feeble and faithless. But it goes to show, you know, every believer will enter into the gates of eternity limping and hobbling. You know, I myself may need to use my fingernails for the last stretch of the you know, final few inches, I'll barely cross that finish line. But upon crossing that finish line, as tears of relief and triumph stream down our muddy and bruised faces, I promised you, I promise you that the very first words out of our lips will be, it was all by the grace of God. He was the one who kept me All alone, His patience never left me. His mercy never deserted me. His grace always restored me. And His love daily assured me. And church, because this is true, let us fully entrust ourselves to the One who has proved Himself to be so trustworthy and walk in obedience and in faith. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we confess the weakness and failings of our flesh but we fully embrace and receive now with joy and thankfulness the grace that you have for us in Christ. And even now, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we thank you that through this sacrament, you feed souls in weakness that the elements of the bread and the cup that you set apart for us are to remind us as visible signs of your loving intent to feed us warm food for our weak faith. Holy Spirit, would you minister to us, tend to our souls, and renew us once again in your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.